And welcome to another class in the bunker. Uh, again, thanks so much for all of you who come on and listen, and then you hit like, and then you hit share, uh, because it makes all the difference in, uh, in us being able to reach out to everybody who's out there as, they, uh, as you share this to, to your own page. So thanks so much uh, for that. Also, I'm going to excuse a little bit. Uh, I've struggled a little bit this week with a little bit of a chest cold. And so if my voice sounds just a little bit deeper or more gravelly from time to time. It's not that I'm suddenly maturing more. Uh, it's just that my lungs are trying to get used to getting rid of all of the gunk in there. But uh, again, thank you for joining us. Now, we have an interesting talk today uh, talking about idols. And as we start, I want to ask this question. Um, when you're feeling fearful, where or whom do you turn to? Something about fear means we don't quite trust ourselves, and so we have to be able to reach out somewhere or to some place. So where is it that you turn to? Now, to be honest, do the voices that you listen to Maybe even on a regular, uh, everyday basis, do they fill you with hope? As you listen to or read people online or in books or social media uh, or news or cable news, by the time you get done listening to those voices, are you for, filled more with hope or are you filled more with dread? Do they leave you more fearful or even more confused? Because we, ha we certainly have enough people out there, be they media influencers or whether they're cable news people, uh, whose job is to stir you up and to make you more fearful, uh, to draw you into watching or reading or listening to them more. Fear seems to be a cottage industry, uh, and people are really kind of bent in making sure that they can leave you stirred up and fearful, but, make, but keep you watching as a result of that. Now, so is the, sometimes it would look like the alternative is then to say, maybe we should just avoid the news, avoid all those voices, and listen only to fluff stories filled with rainbows or puppies, or listen to tabernacle choir music 24 hours a day, or just conference talks, uh, so that we avoid all news altogether or any negative voices. And that doesn't seem to make sense either. We need to be able to get our information and knowledge, but we need to be able to know how it is that we handle it. And as we're going to talk about today, or to know those things that uh, aren't very productive for us in the way that we handle fear and threat and, and, and that contention that may come our way. Now, the, to, to do that, let me, let me start with a very well-known story. We've, for those of you who are kind of new to this, uh, we've kind of slowly been working our way through the Old Testament and there are myriad of stories and instances and lessons that come rolling out of the Old Testament. So let's start with a story that we know well. This is, this is the children of Israel parked in front of Sinai. Uh, the Lord invites them to come listen to his voice as he speaks to Moses. 
they say to Moses, I'm not so much. That's a pretty scary thing. They're filled with fear. They say, you go talk to him. Tell us what he says. So, here's what we know. When the people saw that Moses then delayed, because he was up there about 40 days getting the information, delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him. So here's a, here's a group of people already in fear. And they're going to reach out to uh, Aaron to say, in order to calm our fears, we're not sure when this man, Moses, might come back. For all we know, he got cooked on the mountain. There's a lot of pyrotechnics and lights and storms and things going on up there. Uh, we don't know if he's coming back. Uh, so they're going to go to Aaron, and they're going to they're say to him, in order to calm our fears, what are we going to do? Well, up, make us gods who shall go before us. So we need not just Moses, a man, but we need a God that's going to be in our midst. As for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Notice that they were still caught up in the God-worshipping part of Egyptian lore. Was that our gods are in our midst. We can see them. They're made of stone. This man brought us out of Egypt. We're not sure that it was God. We think he's a pretty mad... Moses is a pretty magical guy. So, uh, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said unto them, let's do this. Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And what is, he, what is he going to do with all of these? Well, he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it into a graving tool and made it a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, it's very easy for sometimes for us to jump and say, Well, they decided to make uh, idols instead of worshiping God. It's not quite as simple as it might look. So I want you to see what it is that they did and how Aaron responded and why maybe Aaron did this. Now, to do this, let's back up just a little bit. Because to be honest with you, I've always thought it was a little bit silly. I've never completely understood how any group of people in any age of the earth could have said I'm going to carve something. I carved it with my own hands. Then I'm going to set it in a temple. And that's going to be a god to me. Something that I created. It would be like if, if we had said to our kids, here's a lump of clay. They made a creature out of clay. They set it up and you said, that's now a god. Oh, well, we then we should worship that. And they're saying, yeah, but I made it. I know, but it's now a god. I never understood, to be honest, how exactly that worked until I kind of did some research on this. It's a pretty fascinating process that has some incredible uh, connections to some of the things that we do today. So stay tuned. That's called a tease. Okay? Now, what would happen anciently is that they would, people would carve idols 
of stone. Uh, and whether those were going to be Israelite, Canaanite, Babylonian, they did go ahead and carve idols of stone. But they didn't remain just idols, just a, a carved image. What would happen is there would be a process. And for instance, in the Canaanite tradition, they would take that carved image. It would be placed uh, down by a river in a reed hut. And there, uh, a priest would uh, do incantations over it and dividing it so that what was happening at that moment is that they were that deity or deified power or godlike power was being placed in that stone. So they were taking what was a stone and, and God would enter it and make it divine. Now, in some weird sort of ways, they would make sure that that meant that suddenly it was far, it had been made far beyond was by what they had just carved. In some cases, they even went so far with some, in some cultures where uh, a, a skilled uh, craftsman would carve the stone. They would actually cut off the hands of the guy that carved it so they could say, it sort of made itself because there's nobody here that could have made this god. Uh, that these gods kind of made themselves. Um, so there had to be a process by which it went from being carved in the shop to being turned into a god. And then what would happen is that then you would go ahead and it would de- then be placed in a temple worthy of worship. So the process is how do you take something that's an object and make it a god? that can give you power and is worthy of worship that can, that can act in your life even though you carved it but it's no longer just the thing you carved. It has now been filled with godhood, filled with the divine, filled with the power to intervene in your life and, and do things for you. So it's worth uh, worshiping because it's this object has been made more than just a man-made object, if that makes sense. Okay, so that now fits. Let's now go now go back to Aaron uh, and the children of Israel, because as you know, uh, they worship the golden calf. They turn them loose as a festival. They're celebrating that they now have not just Mo- Moses. We didn't sure if he was coming back, but we have a God in our midst who's gonna. We can worship. He's going to bless our lives. Life is going to be really great. Uh, And then, of course, Moses comes down the mountain, sees what's going on, breaks the tablets. And then we have a little snippet of the conversation between Moses and his younger brother. Kind of along the lines of, what the heck did you do? My one? Unless you understand how idols become gods, you won't understand what Aaron is about to say. Otherwise, it's going to sound like about the lamest excuse that you might hear from a five-year-old that just got it into the cookies. Okay? Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. Okay, Moses, I know you're mad. 
You know the people. They're set on evil, you know. I think what he's saying is, I think I was in danger if I didn't give them something. Okay, you know these people. They're kind of evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us because we're scared. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, you can see Moses doing kind of a prophet eye roll. I didn't bring him out of the land of Egypt. I can't believe they still believe that after the Red Sea thing. Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Forty days is a long time when we're scared. Then, then listen to this number, this beautiful excuse. So I, Aaron, said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Pfft. Who knew? Yeah, I just, I just had gold rings. I tossed it in the fire, and a calf came out. That, that's like walking into a room with a, with a five-year-old holding a marker, and you see that the fur, your furniture and the walls and everything are all covered in this purple marker, and you're saying. What happened in here? Who wrote all over this? And the five-year-old going, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Okay? I threw the gold in there, and a calf came out. I, in other words, I didn't really make this calf. Don't know where it came from. I, I was just trying to make gold, and that came. Okay, now, if you get the idea, though, that in those days, that an object could be made into a god, you get a sense that there was a belief that God or deified power really could enter into a, uh, an object and make it more than just an object. That it really has, it, it's, it's no ordinary object anymore. Now, do we have some examples of that? Oh, yeah, quite a lot actually. Um, because first of all, I need you to see probably what it is that Aaron was trying to duplicate. Um, I want you to meet uh, Apis, the bull. This was one of the pantheon of gods in Egypt. This, this is Apis, the bull. Okay. Now, every time that you will see this Egyptian bull here, you'll actually always see kind of this sun object sitting in his horns. Well, that's because the bull is actually the son of a god. In this case, this sun is the female goddess Hathor. And she's a sun god. So whenever, so this really isn't a bull. This is a calf. And he's the son of Hathor. Now, Apis has an interesting history in their eyes in the fact that the, the legend of Apis the bull is that he, he was a god that lived on the earth, went through a, a suffered a lot, was ultimately sacrificed, who died, and then ultimately he rose again. And there was great joy in Egypt when Apis rose again uh, because of that going down into the underworld, confronting the gods of, of the underworld, and then rising up out of the underworld 
Apis then became an intermediary for the people between Hathor and man. So you start to get in there this sense probably coming from uh, the uh, the patriarchs Adam and Moses or Adam and Noah and Enoch, their understanding of Jesus who would come. It seems that those that understanding that knowledge had crept into Egypt and they had put an Egyptian spin on a God who would sacrifice and die and be resurrected and then be an intermediary for man. Okay, so. In other words, you've got this this bull that will be the intermediary between man and God. We've lost Moses, they would say. Give us Apis, who will then be able to quell this angry God for us while we're in the wilderness, make sure we don't starve, make sure that our enemies don't get us, we need somebody to be in our corner, and we think Apis is, is uh, the way to go. So we're going to, so the, the festival, the celebration was around making this golden calf. Notice it's not a golden bull. It's a calf. It's the son of a god. And they understood that, and even the words in Hebrew suggest they understood this in their language to be Jehovah. They saw this very much as the stone embodiment, not of Apis. We understand enough that we're not, that our gods defeated their gods. So Jehovah defeated Apis and Pharaoh. So we, we do believe in Jehovah, but he's going to be the stone embodiment that God that will inter, be our intermediary between us and the angry God. Okay, now, over and over and over through history, we have a lot of people at kind of this magic world viewpoint of things of turning objects into gods or to give them godlike power, magical power that they didn't previously have. Let's, let's take a couple of instances. One of them, we have that story in, in the Book of Mormon of uh, Nephi and the boys on their way to get the brass plates from Laban. Laban's maybe got a nasty reputation with him. Who's going to go talk to Laban? Well, we got to pick one of us. Let's not all go at once. So they're going to figure out who's going to go. And it says that they cast lots. So if we just read that on the surface, casting lots was not like picking the, the, the uh, short straw. Casting lots was taking uh, several straws, throwing them in the air, they come down, and then you believe that one of those straws would be pointing, maybe a, a discolored one or something like that, would be pointed at the one that was supposed to go do the thing. But they also believed, as they did um, at Masada, when they cast lots, they believed that God would direct the way that the lots would fall. Somehow these lots are going to be God's extension 
to tell you who was supposed to fulfill what they, what they were supposed to do. The lots were God's instrument. They'd just been sticks a minute ago, but now they are God's instrument to tell us what needs to happen. So always the drawing of lots or the casting of lots uh, is God's will being known to man using objects. Does that make sense? Okay. I'll give you another one. Moses' staff. Remember at the uh, burning bush, the Lord says, when, when Moses says, I don't think I can do this. And the Lord says, well, what's that in your hand? And he says, well, it's a staff. Well, in that moment, it becomes the staff of Moses, ultimately the staff of Aaron. And it will be filled with the ability to turn into a snake, to defeat other staffs, uh, that when raised, it can uh, part the Red Sea. Where it's God that's doing it, but it's his power in their eyes being placed into an object and made more than, than what it is. Okay, That's really ancient. Do we know anything closer to that? Well, the divining rods. We know that early in his career, before he started writing for Joseph Smith and teaching school uh, to the Smith children, Oliver Cowdery was involved with divining rods, water witching, finding out, holding this, what looks like just a branch or a stick, but it will bend over or it will move when you come across w where the water table is highest, and you can dig the well right here because I'm water witching. And anybody that's ever lived in, on a farm uh, or out, out in the country, there's still a great belief in, in water witching and divine rods that can find water. Joseph used to think it also would, divi would divine out where gold could be found. Uh, and, and this staff is something that Oliver Cowdery actually kept with him uh, for quite a while. In fact, a number of the brethren after uh, Nauvoo, a story for another time, uh, had these staffs that, uh, that uh, Emma Smith had taken some of the locks of hair from Joseph Smith's head after his death, and, and they would place, they would have these staffs, they would take one of Joseph Smith's hairs and put them into this staff, and then they would put some kind of a, a glass bulb over the top of it, and it was felt to have more power, more inspiration, more knowledge, because they had a lock of Joseph Smith's hair that would give it extra powers to lead them in the wilderness kind of thing. So we, we've had a tendency uh, to do this. We're not even talking about Joseph Smith's seer stones. Uh, same deal. Uh, Christianity has carried that idea for the longest time about Christian relics, that if they could get one of the bones of the saints, you know, we've got, we've got Peter's femur uh, or Thomas's rib bone, um, St. Paul's finger, you know, all, the, all through Europe and, and the ancient, they, they would believe that they had one of the bones or relics or the body of one of these saints and they would make great pilgrimages that would give them strength from this bone, from this whatever. Or from icons. Okay? An icon, uh, as an example of this, um, 
Icons are, are pretty big in uh, in uh, Greek Orthodoxy, in the Greek Orthodox Church. Uh, years ago, um, we had a chance to lead a group of people on a on a Greek tour, and one of the places that we uh, stopped at was a well, it was the beautiful island of Santorini. And in Santorini, we had a wonderful tour guide, uh, and she led us all over the island, but specifically knowing that we were religious, and she had never heard of Latter-day Saints or Joseph Smith or gold plates or anything. She took us to her little village. She took us to the, her little church in her little village, and she took us and showed us with great pride the icon picture that was in that church. Now, in that they had this icon, and it was just an old uh, tiled picture, I think, of the Virgin Mary. But the church, but the little village was very proud of this icon because it brought it brought Mary's power to this church. And 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 there is very much worshipped. If you're going to go in, you were going to make the sign of the cross in front of this little icon picture because there was power there in this picture that had been filled with, with God's power. So there's a, again, the, the idea of idols and empowering objects is something long tradition kind of in the kind of the magic uh, society of things. Um, now, of course, of course, of course, we are far more sophisticated to, to do anything like that, uh, to give that kind of deified power to an object that we know is just an object. Uh, we never do that. Do we? Uh-huh. Well, so, hold on to that thought. So what exactly was Aaron and the children of Israel doing with a golden calf? Why did they feel like they needed to create and then empower an object that they had made in the wilderness. Because that was how they handled their fear. That's how they handled the unknown. That if they would believe so much in, a, in an object that they, it would allay their fears because this object would somehow save them or gave them status so much so that uh, that's where they were going to put their faith and they were going to put their hope. But brothers and sisters, look at what was happening. Um, here's what we know. If you read, as you're reading the account, at something is happening simultaneously with Moses and with Aaron. On the Moses side, Moses is up the mountain. He is receiving instructions on how to build a tabernacle. The Lord has given him instructions about how big to build the tabernacle, the outer court and everything that needed to be constructed. And that inside would be something called the place of meeting. We, tell, we call it the temple. The Lord called it a place of meeting. Why a place of meeting? Well, that's because God was preparing a way that he could actually dwell in their midst. 
they were creating a place that God could come and live among them. If it was set up in such a way that symbolically it had prepared the way, not for an idol, not for an object, but for God himself to be there. Now, due to their fear and due to their impatience, look at what Aaron was doing at the same time. Aaron is fashioning a Jehovah idol in the pattern of the Egyptian and Canaanite gods. An idol that they can worship. So in a sense, what they were doing was setting up a God substitute and substituting the presence of God for an idol uh, intermediary that maybe would uh, talk to God for them. And by doing that, they, they um, sacrificed their ability to have God in their midst. Ultimately, we're going to see, remember, during Moses' time with them, they never had to fight a battle. God defeated the Egyptians, and they never had to fight a battle. After Moses is taken from their midst, and Joshua is going to have to be the one to lead them forward, the Israelites had to fight endless battles getting into the, into the uh, land of promise. When you have God in your midst, you don't have to fight battles. God will do the fighting for you. If you're going to work only with idols, you're going to have to fight your own battles and, and hope that you're going to figure out what you need to do. When we have God in our midst, we don't need to fear. When we don't have God in our midst, we're left a little bit more to ourselves, and life gets a whole lot harder and a lot more fearful. So, here's my question. When you are feeling fearful, where or to whom do you turn? Where do you find comfort? Years ago, President uh, Spencer Kimball in uh, 1976, celebrating the country's bicentennial, gave a fabulous talk called The False Gods We Worship. In it, he says, What are we to fear when the Lord is with us? Can we not take the Lord at his word and exercise a particle of faith in him? Our assignment is affirmative to forsake the things of this world as ends in themselves, to leave idolatry and press forward in faith, to carry the gospel to our enemies that they might no longer be enemies. We must leave off the worship of modern-day idols and reliance on the arm of flesh. So, before we wrap up, let me, let me challenge you a little bit here because I think there are times, if we're not careful, that we place our strength in some interesting directions. For instance, 
Where do you get your comfort from? Is it possible, brothers and sisters, without even trying, that we might even turn very, very good things in our lives, like our family, our church calling, our ancestry, or even the scriptures into an idol? We're so busy worshiping our family or our calling or our status or something like that that we're looking at that and not beyond it to the Savior. If we, if, and one of the ways that we'll know is that are we threatened when our church calling changes and now suddenly we have lost something that we had? Or are we threatened when we're putting our our faith and hope in our family and, and one of them begins to struggle so it causes us to, to worry greatly, not just for their, their welfare, but what it, that says about us. Because my strength was because I was a fabulous mother in Zion and then my kids struggle and now I'm no longer the fabulous mother in Zion. In other words, my kids kind of became the idol who I worship. I'm great because my kids are great. Uh, or the scriptures, you know, I am a great scriptorian. What happens if I turned out that I have that? I got that wrong. Rather than using all of these things as a path towards understanding the Savior better, we can turn even good things into idols that we turn to rather than the Savior if we're not careful. I hope that doesn't sound blasphemous, uh, but I, I think we have to be really careful about that. So finally, as mortals, we have an inborn drive to worship. I think it was there with Adam and Eve right from the very beginning, and we have a desire to worship. Let's just make sure that we keep the Lord the focus of that worship and not have anything else that would stand in the way uh, of, of our path towards Him uh, as we strive to, to get closer to Him. I bear you my testimony that the Lord is stronger than idols, that we have the ability to have the Lord in our midst if we will simply turn to Him and allow Him to be that. I bear you my testimony that it's true, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>